Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in once again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. God wants his people to be passionate about church and passionate about church because it is the means by which he is glorified in the earth. to share with you just a brief series now on understanding the church and I think this is critically important at this point having just gone through two or perhaps for some parts of the world three years of COVID interruption and I say COVID interruption because it really interrupted what was happening as far as every local church goes. Many people of course were more or less given the option of not going to church and only doing live stream. But even after the lockdowns and even here in Tasmania, even after the lockdowns ended, many people opted to still just do live stream, just do church remotely. I want to speak to those people. I also want to challenge those people who think that church is no longer relevant, that you can privatize church, you can just have your own thing going. I've spoken to many people who throughout the COVID season, they got involved with watching their favorite preacher on YouTube and that they described as, quote unquote, their church. I want to look at what scripture says, what Jesus had to say about church and really point out that what they are describing bears little to no resemblance to what the Bible describes as church. And so in this session, I want to talk about the church that is spirit-filled and on fire. So let's pray. Father, we need your help. We need to understand your word for our own good, but Lord, for your good. Because Father, our heart really longs for us to be able to please you, to be able to give you great glory. And so, Father, in this moment, I pray, use me to speak to your people. Help us to understand why your heart for the church is so critically important. Help us to see what is in your word. And Lord, prevent me from putting things into your word that were never there in the first place. And I pray that when we're done, you would give us each a heart for your glory, that we together as the church may give you the glory that you deserve. And I pray for this in the almighty name of Jesus Christ. It says that the church was birthed in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, that Jewish festival where they would celebrate the fruit of the harvest. And so in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says this, When the day Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I want you to notice those two expressions, they were all together in one place. And now at that time in the history of the church, there was only that gathering. That was it. That was the entire global church together in one place at one time in, in one moment of history. Now that obviously, after this particular day, as we're about to read, that would never be possible again. The church would then have to do things that would accommodate its growth and its spread around the empire. So I continue. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. 
and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And that describes the moment the church was born. Jesus had told the disciples for the 40 days that he was with them after his resurrection, that he was commissioning them to be his emissaries, his ambassadors. The Bible word is apostles to go and preach the message of the kingdom and thereby fulfill what he had said in Matthew chapter 16, which was that he would build his church and build his church. He still is. And I want to bring a word, what I hope is a word of correction. I want to do it with love, but I want people to understand that we have a mandate that still applies. The very thing that Christ said he was about, that is building his church. That's in Matthew chapter 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For some people, church has become something that that perhaps has caused offense or perhaps it's become formalized in the sense of it's all about form and ritual with no heart. There's no sense of the presence of God. There's no sense of the Spirit of God moving. There's no expectation what's going to happen now when we gather. Because as we read through the early chapters, particularly of the book of Acts, we see a church that was birthed with fire that John the Baptist would have. Well, he earlier described that when Christ comes, he would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that word fire speaks of passion. God wants his people to be passionate about church and passionate about church because it is the means by which he is glorified in the earth. I want to show you as we look at this series that the church is on a mission. The church has a mission. And when we get to that, I want to show you that our mission isn't just to prevent people from going to hell. Our mission is not just to enable people to go to heaven. Our mission to see people come into salvation, that is being made right with God, is because God is Lord. He is the ultimate Lord. And when Jesus Christ was commissioning his disciples, as recorded in the book of Matthew, we see that he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in earth and in heaven has been given to me. Now, if he has all authority, that doesn't leave anyone with any claim on any authority outside of Christ. And because he has all authority, any other kind of worship other than that which belongs to Christ is idolatry. And idolatry does not bring glory to God. And the church exists to glorify God, to bring him great glory and to bring him great glory by delivering those who are captive to sin out of their sinful idolatry and into a right standing with God to give him glory. And this is what the church is all about. And so on that day, the day of Pentecost, the church was spirit filled and it was on fire. Now, we sometimes hear people use this expression that that church is really on fire or that church is a, is a spirit-filled church. And sometimes that, that term is confused. I think people see perhaps a larger congregation and assume, well, that 
church there has great programs. It has great facilities. The music is great. The preaching is great. But that's not what constitutes being an on-fire, spirit-filled church. Now, don't misunderstand me. Those things could be qualities. They could be the things that describe an on-fire, spirit-filled church. But they're not the things that make an on-fire, spirit-filled church. I want to show you in a moment that there is something else that constitutes and leads to a church being called to be an on-fire church. When we we look at Christ being baptized, I mentioned before that John the Baptist said that when Christ comes, John says, I baptized or I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it's my hope as a local church pastor that our church will be a spirit-filled, on-fire church. It's also part of my prayer for every church in our city. And I pray that every pastor, every church leader would have it as their heart for their church too. We don't just want to go through the rituals, the forms, the, the things that we do because, well, we've got to tick those boxes. God help us. We do not want to be like that. So we read that, firstly, that the last thing that the, the Bible actually talks about in the book of Revelation, is a message to seven particular local churches. Now, one of the things that's important to appreciate is that there are principles that every church should should live by. Every church should follow a set of principles that will lead to them being on fire and spirit-filled. Now, those principles will look different, I'm going to argue, for every local church in the sense of that the principles are the same but but they will look different in each church some churches will have a, a highly uh, liturgical church service that means they might have a book that says pray here sing here kneel here stand here recite this creed that kind of thing that some people think oh that that's just you know dead cold religion not necessarily that, that's not what makes a church dead or cold or not alive or whatever you, whatever expression you want to use. That's not the thing that makes it like that. There is something that will make a church on fire and alive and spirit-filled that could be working through a liturgy, such as Anglican churches and Presbyterian churches and so on use liturgies and things like that. What we recognize in the seven churches that Christ spoke to, starting at Ephesus, is that with most of these churches, Christ commends them for something. And if you have a look at the message that Christ had for these seven churches, that it was different for each one of them. Now, this is, this is amazing because these seven churches were within proximity of each other. It was the trade route that started at Ephesus. It then went to Smyrna, it then went to Pergamum, it then went to the uh, Thyatira. We see this following in, in the order of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and then to Sardis, and then to Philadelphia, and finally finishing up at Laodicea. And with each of these churches, Christ had something different to say. 
Some, he commends them for their works. He commends them for their endurance, their patience. The church at Philadelphia is one where they are commended. It says in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those, and he goes on. Now, my point here is that he doesn't say that to the other six churches. In other words, Christ knows what this particular local church needed to hear. He knew exactly where they were at. And this is the, sometimes people say, I wonder what, I wonder what God is saying to the Church of Australia or the Church of the United States or the Church of, you know, in England or whatever. And I'm suggesting that's not necessarily the way God speaks to his church. Sometimes God speaks directly to a local church. That local church will hear a word from the Lord that requires them to respond. About five of these seven churches, Christ tells to repent, but for different reasons. We see that in the message that Christ has for each of these local churches, several of them, at least three of them, had been corrupted and had compromised sexually. Sexual sin, Jesus identifies, as something that will defile them and something that they needed to repent from. So we see some very strong messages given. We see the, the message to the church at, at Pergamum that where, where Christ says, but I have a few things against you. You have some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So here Christ goes on and says, therefore repent if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So that's a very strong word. The principle of a church wanting to be on fire and spirit-filled surely involves a church that has an intolerance for sexual sin. Immorality, that is, sexual immorality. We see the same message also given to the church at Thyatira. We see Christ in chapter 2 and verse 22 of Revelation. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. It's a pretty strong message. He, he goes on, I will give to each of you according to your works. And Christ has, for some in the church at Thyatira, a, a positive message where he encourages them to keep going. He says, but... To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. And again, we see that the church of Sardis is told, I know your works, Revelation chapter 3, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and what is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, 
and you will not know what hour I come against you. So here Christ is speaking to each of these churches and several of them had a problem that needed to be dealt with. Uh, in particular, he identifies it to at least to three of these churches that there were some of those within the church who were practicing sexual immorality and that needed to be dealt with. You cannot be a spirit-filled, on-fire church expecting the blessing of God if you are ignoring blatant sin. And the blatant sin that was happening in several of these churches was sexual immorality, which Christ, the letters are read, if you have a look at this in the book Revelation, Christ is speaking to these churches saying, repent. And if you don't repent, you will experience the consequences of your sin. So what does it take to be an on-fire, spirit-filled church? We see Christ speaking to the church at Sardis where he says, everyone thinks you're alive. (laughs) You have a reputation, he says, for being alive. But, that's verse 1, but you're actually dead. Christ says you're actually dead. So you can... You can have a church that has impressive buildings, a church that has impressive programs, a church where the preaching is very entertaining, but the word of God is neglected. One of the things that will lead to a church being on fire and spirit-filled, one of the hallmarks of that is that that church will give heed to the word of God. Whatever the word of God calls sin, God calls for repentance of. So, We have the first thing that we need to deal with is, are we as a church fully committed to Christ in the sense that we are not doing the things God commands against? In other words, are we doing the things that God commands us not to do, that he forbids? Because if that's the case, then we cannot expect that we will be a spirit-filled on fire church it's it's just not possible one of the the things that happened through covid is again people began to misunderstand what church was all about and and it seems that covid if it did anything positive it at least did this it caused some people to realize that church was never meant to be a show For those people whose church experience was an experience where the show was pretty good, the entertainment, that is, the music was great, the singing was great, the multimedia was outstanding, their understanding of church was perhaps distorted because of that. And so we have, I want to read to you something by Shane Morris from the Colson Centre, who recently said this in his Upstream podcast, Uh, This was recorded on February 17, uh, 2023. This is what he says. Apparently, large numbers of people who once identified as Christians have decided they no longer need to attend church. While COVID may have been the impetus behind this exodus, the root causes are pre-existing and go much deeper. Too many Christians think of church as they would an event, concert or TED talk optional experiences that can just as easily be consumed remotely. When combined with pastors and leaders who view the core purpose of church as evangelism rather than discipleship or worship 
and are therefore willing to do whatever seems to work, success is just as easily measured by logins and views after the pandemic as it was by attendance numbers and growth size before the pandemic. Much is behind these shifting numbers. First and foremost, God continues to prune and winnow his church, seeking the health of his beloved. The broader cultural shift away from truth claims and anything that smacks of traditional morality has been intensified in recent years. And we should at least consider the possibility that the decline in both numbers and influence is, at least in part, a self-inflicted wound, Shane Morris says. He goes on, Like C.S. Lewis's famous image of making mud pies in the slum when offered a trip to the seashore, we've baptised, that is, watered down, the habits of the world in place of the riches provided in the testimony of Scripture and the God-ordained practices of the church. Why would our neighbours be drawn to warmed-over versions of the world's leftovers? To use a pair of homespun metaphors, he says, the kind of bait used determines the kind of fish caught, or, more prosaically, what you win people with is what you win them to. After decades of appealing first and foremost to whatever people want and editing to whatever they think, we've essentially discipled a generation that will follow only a church that leads where they want to go. Hmm. In every age, a true and real Christianity finds much to critique as well as to affirm. If we aren't willing, he says, to challenge the sacred cows of our day, if we aren't up to preaching what Tom Holland called the weird stuff of our faith, we will find, and perhaps even now we are finding, that no one is interested in what we have to say because we aren't saying much worth hearing. Boy, these are strong words. So let me, let me sort of point out, what will it take to be an on-fire church? Well, I want to highlight two words. It takes being a God-seeking, God-hearted, and God-pleasing together type of church. Notice those two words. I'm, I highlighted it right at the start when the church was birthed. It says they were together in one place. What does it involve today to be together? Clearly, we can't gather as a one church in one place at one time church. That's just not possible now because of the spread of Christianity and the spread of the church. But what we can do is gather in our local communities as a church. We can gather in our locality. And I know that for many people, they have a, a denominational allegiance that means that they'll drive past local churches to go to a particular church of their fancy. I, I kind of sympathize with that a bit. But we need to understand that a together church is a church that is informed by the word of God so that that kind of church knows how to be together and to do the things that Christians are commanded to do together. And that is 
We need to pray together. We need to develop intimacy with God together. We need to recognize that what Christ was praying for in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was taken to the cross, that is Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39, where he says this very simple, very beautiful prayer. And it goes on, it says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, here's the prayer. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. An on-fire, spirit-filled church will pray that kind of prayer for God's will to be done. We need to recognize that we, when we pray, we are seeking the will of God. We are asking for God to have his way. When the church at Sardis was described as a church that had a reputation for being alive, I wonder if anyone who formed that opinion of them was speaking of their prayer meetings, the times of prayer when they gathered, or whether prayer had become a neglected together activity. It's worth noting that praying together doesn't mean we have to be fancy or eloquent or anything like that. Sometimes, as the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the kind of praying that the Spirit will have us pray will sound like groanings. <laughs> That's the, the language that Paul uses. But it's this kind of praying, praying from the heart, yearning for God to have his way, <laughs> is the kind of prayer that God loves to answer. I want you to be spirit-filled and on fire for God. But more importantly, I want us as a church to to together seek God to be on fire and spirit-filled, even when it costs. And if we read the message that Christ had for these seven churches, several of them he described as facing imminent death, imminent persecution, times of tribulation how easy is it in those times to pray god have your way in my life god may your will be done through me despite my circumstances but those are the kind of prayers that a church that comes together that is spirit-filled and on fire will pray we read in acts chapter 4 and verse 31 when they had prayed that is together the place in which they gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So an on-fire, spirit-filled church seeks God. We seek his will. And I pray that that is exactly what we will do. But a kind of church that wants to be on fire and spirit-filled is also a church that, that embraces the heart of God. And can I tell you, the heart of God sounds like caring for lost people. But it goes beyond that, because it's not just God's heart for the lost that we should have. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, the apostle says this, that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And we need to pray that. But what is the truth? That Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so we read this kind of church that that prays this way. It says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 43, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And it goes on and says, and many came to know Christ. Many were saved and added to the church. The Lord added daily those who were being saved. What kind of church is an on-fire, spirit-filled church? How do you become that kind of church? You're a church that says, we want to please you, God, not the world, not the government, not, not what popularity will induce, but you, Lord, we want to please you with a heart that says, God, we, we seek you. God, we want your heart. And God, we want to please you. And I pray that we together will be that kind of church so that we might be on fire and spirit-filled so that God would be most glorified. Let's pray. Father, in many parts of the world today, the church has has really danced to the tune of the, the world's music in the sense that they they are telling the church, we don't want you to be like that, we want you to be like this. And God, we don't ever want to bow to the world, but we do want to bow our knee in worship to you. God, while the world tells us that our understanding of what you call right and wrong is outdated, may we never be a church that agrees with that. But may we be the kind of church that says, God, your word is good. Your commands are good for us. And we need to obey for our good and for your glory. God, we want our hearts together to glorify you in our obedience. And Father, I pray that you would give us your heart, a heart for your glory, a heart for us to recognize that you really are Lord There is not one square inch of the universe, Abraham Kuyper said, over which you do not declare mine. And Father, help us to walk in that knowledge that everything is yours. You deserve our praise, our worship, our adoration. And also, Lord, you deserve our service and help us to be that kind of people. Now, Lord, I pray for those perhaps who have never surrendered their life to Christ Perhaps for them, church has become a matter of formality. It's just going through the rituals. I pray, Lord, for them that you would fill their heart with the fire of the Holy Spirit. May they come to know the love that you have for them. May they come to understand the grace of Jesus Christ that he gave to us because of of his sacrifice, his substitution for us on the cross. And Father, may we come to know the fellowship with the Holy Spirit, that we might be that on-fire, Spirit-filled church, and through the week, that we might be Spirit-filled and on-fire believers. And when we come together, like putting the coals of a nearly out fire together and seeing that flame once again come up, that the church would be recognized as the place where the Spirit of God moves and does what Tom Holland, the historian, called the weird stuff. Father, do more weird stuff. Change hearts, change minds, and help us to be your instruments in the process, I pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.